Welcome to an encore episode of Words and Pictures, the show about the narrative arts. I'm S.W. Conser. This week, in honor of the 20th anniversary of Words and Pictures, Bill Dodge and I will take you back to January of 2005 when we were joined in the studio by Jack Oman, then the resident editorial cartoonist for The Oregonian Newspaper. Jack left The Oregonian in 2012 and spent 11 years at the Sacramento Bee until their parent company, McClatchy Newspapers, laid off several of their editorial cartoonists. Jack is now the contributing opinion editor at the San Francisco Chronicle. He's also the current president of the American Association of Editorial Cartoonists. And now, Jack Oman, recorded in Portland, January 28, 2005. Our guest for the next half hour is the resident editorial cartoonist at The Oregonian, Jack Oman. Welcome, Jack. Thank you. Good to be here. You've been at The uh, Oregonian for about 20 years now. Your cartoons have become increasingly popular uh, in other daily newspapers across the country as well as in news magazines. What would you say is the trick to capturing a political issue effectively using just pen and ink artwork and a few well-placed words? Well, I think political cartooning has undergone a tremendous evolution over the last 50 years. I think it used to be all about the artwork, and now I think it's moving towards just being about a phrase and a joke. And I think why that's happened is that it used to be 50, 70 years ago, all political cartoonists came out of the art department. And in the last 30 or 40 years, political cartoonists have come out of the political science department and the history department. They're just guys who are quite well-informed, and they are very interested in drawing. So consequently, I think you've seen a real transition in political cartooning. And now, and there's so little space devoted to the actual political cartoon in newspapers, you almost don't even have to be able to really draw because they get reduced down in a lot of papers or magazines down to the size of a postage stamp. So they have to be very bold, sharp images now. As opposed to, you know, in 1940, people would do these tremendous, huge charcoal drawings. That Almost etchings. Etchings. And, and I have some originals from the turn of the century. I have some Homer Davenport originals, and he's from Silverton, Oregon, originally, and he was kind of the main man after Thomas Nast. And they're like two by three feet and these are drawn on deadline. You know, they're just astonishing. I mean, they look like stamps, you know, like the way you design. They're that engraved. They're amazing, or like the way a dollar bill would look. There'll be a lot of occasions that'll arise where an artist can create a completely wordless cartoon. And those are often the ones that readers tend to remember. They can be really effective if you can convey what you're doing with artwork alone or with a minimum amount of words. Well, I try to do a nice job in my artwork. I mean, I seriously, I mean, I really feel like I, I'm really good at drawing federal-style architecture, you know, and I like drawing, you know, I, oh, that's not an ionic column, it's a Doric column, you know. So, I mean, I think about these things, and I don't know if other cartoonists tend to do that. And I think that y you can't just work off a photograph in the newspaper of how somebody looks. I mean, I always prefer to see them on television or even meet them in person and watch them in a board meeting and then you can get the nuance and I, and I try to do nuanced caricatures I think it's very I see a lot of caricatures out there where it's two dots for the eyes and a round nose and, and then just there's like the outline of how they look but I I mean I really go for somebody's eyebrows and what what wrinkles they have in their forehead and how gray they're getting and the, 
the tilt of their head and their body language. And I, I mean, I remember consciously doing Bush kind of lean, you know, leaning over the podium, you know, with his arm over and with the sleeves rolled up. And, I, and a lot of guys would do just, you know, Bush behind a podium in a suit. And I thought, no, no, look, this is, he's doing it this way. I'm going to draw it this way. But I always say that you're, you're working backwards from a phrase. You're not like searching around for, hey, I've got a great drawing of a wrecked automobile or a tank, and I'm looking to slap uh, a label like inflation or unemployment on it and working around it that way. I mean, sometimes it works that way. I mean, sometimes issues come up that are very iconic, like Abu Ghraib and the, you know, the, the, the photographs of the, the prisoners. So everybody would do their take on the guy standing there with the hood over his head with his arms extended, you know, and it was labeled whatever it was. And uh, whenever the media culture serves up some sort of image like that, then cartoonists feel you know morally obligated to to do something on that. Uh, I, I would point to the most recent example of that, which would be weeping statues of liberty cartoons after 9-11. There were over 50 weeping statues of liberty cartoons after, you know, on the day of September 11th. As well as eagles with uh, missiles no. in their claws or whatever. Exactly. And you just think, well, I mean, I could go on and on about this, and since this is a cartoon show, I'm going to. But if 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 I, you know if I see another weeping eagle, I'm just going to start shooting. You know, I want them to become an endangered cartooning species. <laughs> when you're a syndicated cartoonist and you're competing with 80 other syndicated cartoonists every day, you're not only do you have to think about your idea, you have to think about their ideas. And if you come in as a duplicate you're in trouble. And I really think that there's only probably 15 or 20 political cartoonists who do really original work every day, where nobody else is doing what they're doing, you know, Tolls and Oliphant, people like that. Oliphant, uh, it's really interesting. A lot of people were aping him for a while, were copying his style. And what he did at uh, a fairly advanced age for a cartoonist, when a lot of people are getting lazy, is he changed his style completely. And he's still sharp as a tack, still working like a dog to turn these things out that are just scathing. I know, Pat. And I told him a couple years ago, I said, has anybody ever told you that you're doing the work of your life? right now. I mean, he is absolutely at the peak of his career, and he's almost 70 years old, and he said no. And it's just astonishing. I mean, he's doing he's doing stuff that's so good that it's not reprinted as much as some of the other crap that's out there, frankly, because his stuff is it's so transcendent. I know that you started out as a, uh, a bus driver for uh, Walter Mondale and uh, Jimmy Carter's motorcades in the Twin Cities, and and also, we're at the uh, Minnesota Daily at the University of Minnesota. When I was a young teenager growing up in Minnesota, uh, I had just come from living in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Even though I was born in Minnesota, lived in Marquette, Michigan, an incredibly remote little outpost on Lake Superior. We moved to Washington, D.C. in March of 1968. What mm-hmm. was it like in March of 1968? Well, Martin Luther King was shot about two weeks after we moved there. I lived in um, Alexandria, Virginia. I saw Washington burning to the ground. Uh, I remember my dad taking me up to Roslyn, which is in Arlington. And just I remember as a seven-year-old, there were like 50 or 60 huge black plumes of smoke hanging over Washington, D.C. That had an incredible impact on, bet, on yeah. me. And we went downtown to D.C., and Nixon was president, and there were war protests, and I saw a lot of stuff like that. And I, 
um, became very political. And by the time we moved to Minnesota, a water, and then Watergate was going on. And I was the guy, instead of watching Twins games on TV, I was watching the Senate Watergate Committee. And that was incredibly uh, influential. I remember one time I was up in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, giving a speech. And somebody asked me a question, Mr. Oman, what, what was one of your biggest influences? And I said, oh, Watergate. I loved Watergate. I thought Watergate was fantastic. I, thought, I loved every minute of it. On and on. The 60-year-old woman comes up to me afterwards and says, Mr. Oman, I really enjoyed your remarks today. Thank you. I was particularly interested about your experience with Watergate. Uh, and I said, yeah, I thought Watergate was great. And she said, I had a personal experience with Watergate. And I said, oh, what was that? And she said, I was Mrs. John Ehrlichman. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I don't say it quite as loudly as I used to, but those were some of my early influences. And then artistically, during Watergate, you had Conrad, you had Oliphant, you had Herblock, uh, McNelly, folks like that, and we got Fischetti and John Fischetti, and yeah, I yeah. V- friends with John Fischetti's wife, and have Zinga Zinga Za, and John Fischetti is uh, one of my heroes as well. He was the Chicago Daily News or yes. Chicago Sun Times. I, I, was, I was living in Chicago at the time, and yeah. he was amazing. Yeah, he was great, and very. In fact, I think my work is pretty inspired by Fischetti uh, in a way. I think I I do a lot of black and white stark stuff sometimes and every time i do something like that i think john would do this background this way so uh, as a youngster were you aware of um the long uh tradition in this country and in other countries uh political satire uh, editorial cartoonists uh well i acquainted myself quickly with american political cartooning tradition mm-hmm. when i was in college that's but, what i was getting at yeah uh, i think most political cartoonists are woefully ill-informed about where they came from yeah you have to wonder sometimes if these folks even went to art school oh well they yeah but but more importantly they don't get their role yeah i mean they don't get their historic role which was you know to provoke to muckrake right you you know to to shake things up that's uh what i meant about the, the long tradition of satire that goes back farther than probably any form of cartooning on the planet uh, there, there's certainly a lot of material to draw from. I mean, obviously, you don't have to know every single cartoonist in order to have your job, but it sure helps. I sure. Think. Well, I mean, to, I to think any good. any political cartoonist has to to know Nast and understand Nast, and right. to know, you know, Cruikshank, to know the French cartoonists. I mean, just to have some sort of sense of where this was all coming from 250 years ago. It just makes them a better cartoonist to know that there there was a a reason why political cartooning evolved, which was to to make political issues accessible and to make them more boldly vivid for the reader. So we're talking about Damier, especially. Sure. Mm-hmm. That's that's who comes to mind, and uh, that particular artist amazes me because and Jules Ray. Yeah, yeah, because he was such an influence on Disney artists when they wanted to know how to do an exaggerated pose even though they weren't doing political work they would they would whip out his work to to solve their problems and well i think that there you can kind of do a family tree of political cartooning where there's right now the group of cartoonists who are my age who are very influenced by mcnelly and jeff came right out of pat oliphant i mean he was absolutely literally tracing almost pat's cartoons in 1970 and 
around 1960, John Fischetti uh, was doing kind of a, a British cartoon style. He had brought the horizontal style <clears throat> to the United States. But Pat really popularized it when he came here in 64. And he'd come out of Australia. The modern political cartoon was born in Australia and England. It does, I mean, American political cartooning stopped in 1964. It just stopped. Nobody is doing that anymore. The big element, the big, you know, Uncle Sam, Mr. Taxpayer, big bomb thing, it, it died. I was wondering if you had any suggestions for books or websites that people could look at the history and the tradition of editorial cartooning and get some real solid background on it. If you want to see how bad American political cartooning is, go to the Salon website. (laughs) It's just astonishing. I mean, there'll just be one lousy cartoon after another that will give you chest pain. Um, As far as the history of American political cartooning on the web, go to the Association of American Editorial Cartoonists website, and I don't think it's aaec.com. You'll have to do a Google search, and it's Association of American Editorial Cartoonists, and they have a lot of links to all sorts of things. I mean, the Smithsonian... Uh, has, I'm sure, Ohio State University has a cartoon library, and they have a website, and that library at Ohio State is the focus of academic research on political cartooning in the United States. You're listening to an encore episode of Words and Pictures, featuring Pulitzer Prize-winning editorial cartoonist Jack Oman. I'm SW Concer. Bill Dodge and I spoke with Jack in January of 2005 while he was still working for the Portland Oregonian. He now draws and writes for the San Francisco Chronicle. Jack's work can be found online at gocomics.com and also jackoman.net. That's J-A-C-K-O-H-M-A-N.net. Now, going back to Jeff McNally, he was one of the first editorial cartoonists to do a really successful daily strip uh, mm-hmm. called Shoe. Mm-hmm. And uh, you also, a few years ago, introduced a daily comic strip, which is still running. You're no longer in charge of this. It's no. called Mixed Media. And it seemed to be a classic gag cartoon, plenty of wordplay, with a postmodern twist. It was asking what would happen if different aspects of our media culture collided with each other. Well, I enjoyed the idea of mixed media. And I thought it was a it was an original idea, and I was afraid if I didn't do it, somebody else would. And I wasn't going to do a strip about a dog. I wasn't going to do a strip about a family. And they said, this is a really f- interesting idea. Let's do it. You're not going to make what anything on licensing or, or merchandising. But if you want to do this, you know, maybe maybe this will work out. So what happened was is I started doing it, and... Being a young baby boomer, but I have a you know very good cultural frame of reference. I mean, a late boomer, a late boomer, <laughs> and I yeah, 1960. And I thought the last boomer, Jack Oman, and I thought you know I have got to comment on this junk that I morally can't comment on in my political cartoons. And a lot of the other political cartoonists said, "Oh, you're just doing a political cartoon." I said, "No, I'm doing a political cartoon. You're doing mixed media." But, you know, having to generate the amount of material that I did. And let me just tell you, there was a period in my life where I did six political cartoons a week. I drew mixed media, which was seven a week. I got a bachelor's degree in history. I took 100 credits 
in two years. I took two years of Spanish in one year. This was in 98 and 99, the last two years of mixed media. And I had three young children. So I was up till like one o'clock in the morning every night for two years. And then I decided, you know, my wife went back to work and I said, I'm quitting mixed media. And I sold it back to my syndicate. Berkeley Breathitt, who draws the opus strip in The Oregonian, said that the comics page needs shaking up, that it's lost the edge it once had traditionally. He thinks most strips have run their course, kind of like a family sitcom, and they shouldn't go on forever. Oh, I agree. I, I, I think that comic strips are just pathetic now. I mean, I felt like there were basically five to ten very well-written, well-executed comic strips. Uh, you know, they, they run out of ideas. I think, you know, the original point is, you look at comic strips, you look at Blondie, you know, is there a television sitcom that's been on since 1929? I mean, that's like probably the year they invented you know, the tube, you know, or something. I mean, and there's still, there it is, Blondie every day. It's like, it's like reading a comic strip, you know, about Warren Harding or something, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> that Warren G. Harding sure is wacky, you know. And, it, and, and half the strips in the paper are like that. You know, like <laughs> High and Lois is like 50 years old. Uh, you know, Peanuts, it's still running. I mean, it came out in 1949. I mean, Truman was president in 1949. You, you know, God bless him, but... You know, that it's just wrong. It's, and it's wrong for dead people to do comic. You know, editors, I don't think, like to make changes. I, I remember when I was doing mixed media, and they do comic surveys, and I'd score at the top in the, dem, you know, like the 12 to 19 demographic, and I'd score at the bottom of the 55 and older demographic. And the reason is is that the average newspaper reader is 57 years old or something like that. And so, you know, and God bless them. But, you know, you've got to have a better mix than what they've got, and editors are very reluctant to drop comics. Jack, speaking of your audience, do you ever get interesting mail or, or feedback from, from folks, uh, angry or otherwise? Oh, no, no, I never hear from my people. You know, everybody from Lars Larson to some crazy guy in a double-wide in Troutdale to heads of departments in Oregon or in the cabinet or... You know, just you hear from everybody eventually. And, yeah. you know, Lars Larson sent me an email the other day. Oh, my, my audience didn't like that cartoon. And and I was thinking, well, my first thought was, <laughs> don't want to say, you know. My second thought was, I just emailed him back. I said, well, just tell him God loves them. You know, doesn't, <laughs> you know. And I just thought, you know, I don't really, I, I, God bless him. But, you know, I don't understand why people... It's good that people get upset about cartoons, and I think that you're doing a good cartoon if people do get upset. But I've heard right. from everybody from the president, you know, or people around the president on down. And, and just, you know, imagine working in the environment of the Goldschmidt story, and people will always find, a, you know, some sort of level of offense. Well, yeah, you, you really um, got a lot of uh, flack from some conservative readers over the past year. They thought that you were hammering way too hard on George Bush and Dick Cheney. Mm -hmm. But that's the job of the cartoonist. Right, that was true. That was absolutely true. And you did hear from people at the White House. <laughs> from people at the Oregonian. But they give me absolute latitude at the Oregonian. Uh, I do two local cartoons a week. And I, I used to do three local cartoons a week. And I think that that's enormously important. Um, otherwise, a publisher could just you know, buy syndicated material. And I think that that's what a lot of penny-pinching folks have been doing in the last 20 years. It's like, well, gee, I can get Tolls, Oliphant, and McNally. Well, if you, and not, and then I won't hire anybody. Well, the fact is, is if, 
you get down to essentially like it's they're, they're like defense contractors or something you're down to like six of them and they're all doing the same stuff i just think it's really important to comment on local stuff well why wouldn't you in the northwest i mean you've got uh, just this past year in portland we've had a big gay marriage battle we've had a mayoral race that included a clown and a dead guy as candidates we had covers for our reservoirs that get sold off at ebay with no reserve uh, sex scandal that fell the legendary ex-governor. I mean, some of this stuff can make you nostalgic for the days of Bob Packwood and Tanya Harding. Uh, I, I'm not nostalgic for those days. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think we live in a target-rich environment. I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, I think one of the things that's interesting about living in Portland that I took to my own work when I came out here in 1983, I had worked in very urban environments uh, the Twin Cities and Columbus and Detroit. And when I came out here, after about three months, I thought, aha, I can be the environmental cartoonist, just like George Whitman, the environmental cartoonist, you know. And so I have become very adept at drawing adipose fins on steelhead and salmon and dams and t- trees. And I draw uh, old growth bark like it actually looks with a little fuzz hanging off of it and I can draw spotted owls from memory and and uh, well and you get out there too you're an avid fly fisher if I recall I am catch and release don't kill them you know so and I don't hunt so I am and I'm out there all the time and it's very important to me and I speak to I'll probably be speaking to three environmental groups in the next three or four weeks um, and I'm very passionate about it and I think that I've got to a good mission in my own work. And frankly, I don't know if a lot of cartoonists have a mission anymore. Every day I see cartoons that I, I don't know why they have jobs. I, I mean, not to be too snide about it, but they're, they're, they're not trying too hard and they're not, they're just kind of phoning it in. And, and uh, you know, I did something on the FCC the other day. I've not seen anybody really do, you know, stuff on the FCC. It's an important issue. We actually have a couple of your cartoons on the FCC up on the board here at KBU. We have, oh, uh, really? We have your one where Michael Powell, the guy who's in charge of the FCC, he's popping up in all the news outlets to tell America how wonderful media consolidation is. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. I remember that. You no, know, I think it, it seems to me like the national conversation is dumbed down from the days of Mort Saul and Lenny Bruce, you know, when people knew these political and, and social references these guys were talking about. And now it's all like Janet Jackson gags. That's exactly right. I, I think a lot of, quote, political, unquote, cartoonists do more kind of the media zeitgeist and what you know, wardrobe malfunctions and who's getting divorced and OJ trials and things like that. And, you know, they're just following the dominant media culture. And um, to a certain extent, you know, I have to pay attention to that. But I also don't view somebody's boobs hanging out at the Super Bowl public policy issue, you know. And so it becomes the issue du jour, and everybody feels compelled to comment on it. I, I, and I'm a little embarrassed sometimes because I feel like things like that will happen and they won't even occur to me to comment on as subjects, other than like using them as a metaphor for a political issue. Your cartoons seem to have gotten more intense and, <laughs> and more passionate the last year or so. Yeah. And I'm wondering if that's mostly a frustration with the way politics are going, with the way that people like Karl Rove are making the body politic more cynical? Or if it's like you said earlier, partly 
the role of other cartoonists in not doing their job, in either not paying attention to the issues or thinking their readers don't pay attention to the issues? Well, that's an interesting point. But I think, you know, have I gotten more politicized? I've always been pretty passionate. You know, what I support is a level playing field. You know, if you have a conservative ideology and I have a liberal ideology or somebody has a nader ideology or whatever that ideology is, it should all be played out on a level playing field. That you get you get access to air your ideas. I mean, the way that the TV and campaign finance systems is set up in this country is basically a racket to enrich television, local television stations. I mean, they probably spent a billion dollars this year. Candidates, I think, did spend a billion dollars on their campaigns. That's a lot of money. And when you think that most of it's going for TV buys, okay, there's like Jeez. three media markets here. Four. Um, I understand you've been a popular public speaker over the years. Do you still make the rounds of schools and civic groups with a, a big pad of newsprint? I well, usually I use an overhead projector, but I have spoken to virtually every professional group in the state hmm. at least once, and sometimes three or four times. I, I don't know how many schools I've gone to. I love to speak. I, I, I love to do things like this, and I love to meet people, and I have a very solitary job. And I you know, I'm interested in public policy and I'm interested in meeting people. You get a bit of cabin fever sometimes, huh? I do. Well, I mean, if you think about it, I'm kind of like a very convivial monk. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and that's the myth that a lot of people have about artists that they they kind of shun the outside world because they're too busy drawing their little pictures. Mm -hmm. So that's good that you're, you're getting out there and proving the opposite of that. Well, well, you have to get the material. Yeah. They'll spend some time alone by yourself, you know, drawing, but that doesn't mean you have to spend the whole time doing that. What you're doing is the envy of a lot of people that, that wish they had the talents. Do you, do you look at it as, as a gift, and are, are you grateful for, for being able to whip these things out when many uh, folks cannot? Uh, I'm grateful to God for giving me this gift, and I don't say that in a corny way. Absolutely. Because yeah. I believe in God, and I think that he, God gives everybody a gift, and everybody mm -hmm. has a gift from the lowliest looking person, I mean, to, you know, there are guys who, it's like, I I know what wrench to use. I can just eyeball that, you know, you know yeah, whatever yeah. it is, you know, and, and, uh, and I'm, I feel fortunate to have the, the paper that I work for. I, 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 and I know that I get up with a deep sense of gratitude every morning. Mm -hmm. It's, it, I just think that this whole notion of, of community is so important, you know, that, you know, community radio, you know, community policing, community anything. Go to your church, get involved, pick up trash. You know, I was a Little League coach. I mean, I've get, gotten back 10 times what I put into it. Hmm. You've been listening to an encore episode of Words and Pictures, recorded in January of 2005 and featuring Pulitzer Prize winning editorial cartoonist Jack Oman. I'm S.W. Concer, joined by Bill Dodge. Thanks to all of our listeners on the radio dial and on the web for helping us celebrate 20 years of words and pictures. You can find an archived version of the show later today at kboo.fm slash wordsandpictures. And be sure to follow us on social media at wordsandpicture.